interpreted our Christmas in the Psalms sermon series, reading Psalm 37. Psalm 37 was written by David, and it's a psalm primarily about waiting for the Lord. The traditional Christian celebration of Christmas is often referred to as Advent. And the word Advent means to wait. So at Christmas, we remember that God's people in the Old Testament were waiting for the Messiah to come. And in addition, we're reminded that we too are in a position of waiting as we wait for the Messiah to return. And as we saw in Psalm 37, and as we see throughout the entire Old Testament, God does not let his people down as they wait for him. God didn't let the Israelites down as they stood next to the Red Sea waiting for deliverance from Egypt. God didn't let David down as he waited to take King Saul's place on the throne in Israel. God didn't let Adam and Eve down when he promised that one of their offspring would eventually reverse the curse unleashed on creation because of their sin. Advent reminds us that God keeps his promises. God fulfills his word. And we're simply called to wait. And Jesus is the perfect example of God fulfilling his promise. God keeping his word. And it's the coming of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. But this morning we go back to the Psalms again. The same way the Israelites did as they waited for the Messiah to come. And specifically, we go to Psalm 110, the most frequently quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Now, at first glance, Psalm 110 might seem a bit strange. It might seem somewhat difficult to interpret and understand. But if we look at how Psalm 110 is used in the New Testament, we gain clarity. And we learn that this psalm was really looking forward to Jesus all along. So open your Bibles to Psalm 110. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we begin reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to read your word, to sing, to pray, to take communion. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that we have the privilege of reading and learning. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us hearts and minds that are open to what your word says to us, what your spirit is teaching us through these passages. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for those of us who are traveling today or in the coming weeks. I'm sure there will be much of that for the holidays. I pray for those of us who are feeling under the weather. That's pretty common these days as well. So, Father, give us health. And I pray that as we worship you this morning, we would bring you glory and that we would be challenged and encouraged and convicted how you see fit. We love you and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in Psalm 110, David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Like Psalm 37 last week, Psalm 110 is associated with David. And that shouldn't surprise us. After all, David wrote many of the Psalms, and Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, is a descendant of David. Now that goes back to 2 Samuel 7. God promised David there that he would build David's family a house forever, and that one of David's offspring would have a throne established forever. Now, like Psalm 110, 2 Samuel 7 is a bit difficult to interpret just on its own. But with the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, 2 Samuel 7 suddenly takes on new meaning. And something similar happens to Psalm 110. But there are three things in Psalm 110 that are particularly interesting. Two of them occur in verse 1. The first interesting aspect of Psalm 110 is this. It's this phrase that David utters to start out. The Lord says to my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord. The second thing that's so interesting from verse one is that other phrase sit at my right hand. And then the third thing that's so interesting comes from verse four, that mention of the order of Melchizedek. And as we look at these three very unique phrases, I think we'll get a better idea of how Psalm 110 connects to Christ. So let's start with the first, verse 1, and we're going to refer to it as David's prophecy. And you'll see why in a moment. Now, David is the king of Israel. And in fact, he's the greatest king Israel ever had, especially at the time Psalm 110 is written. David is chosen by God and blessed by God for this role. He's God's chosen representative, not only to his own people, but to all the surrounding nations. And having been appointed to this position by God, it's safe to say that David has a very special relationship, a very close relationship with God. That's why it's interesting when David writes, the Lord says. Now, what's so significant about that? The Lord says, well, that's the way prophets spoke in the Old Testament. Before a prophet would announce a message from God, they would start out with something very similar to what David says here. The prophet would say, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. You know that when a prophet starts with thus says the Lord, it's no longer the prophet speaking. At that point, it's God speaking through the prophet. So when David says, the Lord says, David is fulfilling the role of a prophet. He's prophesying. He's sharing a message directly from God himself. But then there's something interesting in this prophecy as well. David refers to someone else as my Lord. Two times the word Lord occurs there. One of them, it's all capitalized. 
And then one of them, just the L, is capitalized. So we have three different parties in view. We have David, the one doing the prophesying. We have God, that's the Lord, all capitalized. And then we have this second Lord, David's Lord. Now, who do you think that would be? I mean, after all, who, besides God, would have a higher rank than David? He's the king of Israel. Who would David be calling Lord? David doesn't call people Lord. People call David Lord. It all just seems a little bit strange. But now look at that second part of verse 1, the second interesting phrase of Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand. So David's prophesying. Speaking on God's behalf. And in David's prophecy, he's addressing someone that he calls Lord. But then on top of that, look at what God says to this mysterious Lord of David's. He invites that Lord to sit at my right hand. Now, in the ancient world, your right hand was very important. That was the hand that you used to confirm oaths with other people. That was the hand you used when you shook as a sign of peace and fellowship. That was the hand that you used to give and receive gifts. And on top of that, the Old Testament speaks regularly of God's metaphorical right hand when describing God's power, God's deliverance, God's righteousness. Is there anyone here who's left-handed? Raise your hand if you're left-handed. In the ancient world people would have found you to be a little bit questionable. And in Rick's case, in the modern world, they find you to be a little bit questionable. (laughs) But sitting at God's right hand, the way that David's Lord is invited to do, that would have been an incredible place of honor, an incredible place of prestige. But you still find yourself asking, well, who could be more worthy than David? To sit at God's right hand. Who would David call Lord? But then we get to verse 4. That third interesting phrase about Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, Abram, later known as Abraham, saves his nephew Lot after he was caught up in a dispute between a few kings. And as Abram and Lot go on their way, they run into a priest named Melchizedek. You can call him Mel for short. And Abram pays tithes to Mel, and Mel blesses him. But then Mel disappears from the story. Now, as a result, Mel becomes somewhat of a mystery. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Genesis tells us he's a priest, but he's also a king. That's a little bit different. It also says he came from Salem, which may be referring to Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews refers to Mel like an almost mythical figure. He says that Mel is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. It's very, very curious. Now, Melchizedek can be a confusing figure in the pages of Scripture. And if you only look at the Old Testament, it's hard to have any idea of who this guy is and why he's important. It's just One more strange part of Psalm 110. So what exactly is David talking about? What does this psalm even mean? 
And of all the beautiful, poetic psalms that you read in the Old Testament, why is this one quoted in the New Testament more than any other? Well, it's because Psalm 110 may seem a bit perplexing when taken on its own, but it's not meant to be taken on its own. When we read the New Testament, many passages in the Old Testament take on a new meaning that we never would have seen before, and vice versa. In the case of Psalm 110, these verses come together much more clearly when we read them in the light of Christ. So let's go straight to the horse's mouth, and let's see what Jesus has to say about Psalm 110. Because in the midst of a tense conversation with the religious leaders, Jesus brings this passage up. So Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, And here's Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. In modern terminology, this was Jesus's mic drop. So when Jesus asked them who the Messiah is, the Pharisees give the same answer that any other good Jewish person would have at the time. They think of 2 Samuel 7, and they declare that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Everyone knows that, right? But then Jesus asked the same question that we asked earlier. If the Messiah is David's son, would David ever call his son Lord? Well, in David's world, a father wouldn't do that. A father does not call his son Lord. It's the other way around. And the religious leaders know that Jesus is right. And as a result, they're left confused. But when you think about Psalm 110, in light of everything that we know about Jesus, these confusing verses begin to make more sense. Yes, Jesus is a descendant of David, but in a roundabout way. Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, comes from David's family tree. But Jesus' point is that the Messiah isn't the son of David in the traditional sense. The Messiah is the son of God. And if the Messiah is the son of God, eternally existing, equal in power and glory to God the Father, then that makes him higher in rank than David. So who's David talking about in Psalm 110? Who's David calling Lord? Well, he's talking about the Messiah. And the Messiah is not truly David's son. The Messiah is God's son. None other than Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 makes another appearance in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches a long sermon He quotes Psalm 16 as well, referring to Christ. 
But he ends his sermon in verse 34 by saying this. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So in the very first sermon after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Peter quotes Psalm 110. And he does it to show that Jesus is greater than David. He's the Messiah. David died, and David is still dead. Jesus died, but he's now alive. Peter says that David was a prophet, like we said earlier. He also says that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Psalm 110 just keeps on popping up over and over and over. It makes another appearance in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sounds familiar. Sitting down at the right hand of God. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then you jump forward to verse 13. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So in Acts, Peter develops this argument that Jesus is greater than David. And the author of Hebrews adds his own contribution, saying that Jesus is greater than even the angels of heaven. Did David get to sit at the right hand of God? No. His Lord does. Do the angels get to sit at the right hand of God? No. Jesus does. And then in chapter 3 of Hebrews... The author says that Jesus is greater not just than David, not just than the angels, but he's even greater than Moses. And then in chapter 7, he says that Jesus is greater than, well, what do you know? Our old friend Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Moses was a great prophet. Melchizedek was a great priest. And David was a great king. But none of them can compare to Jesus. He's the greatest prophet, the greatest priest, the greatest king, and he's even greater than the angels because he's the Messiah, the one who, after his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, ascended to sit at the right hand of God, just like we read in Psalm 110. So I hope that makes Psalm 110 a little bit easier to understand. 
David may not have fully realized it at the time, but he was prophesying about Jesus, his Lord, the one invited to sit at God's right hand, the one in the order of Melchizedek. But what does this mean for us? Well, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we're reunited with God, never to be separated from him again by sin. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 8, saying that neither height nor depth nor angel nor demon can separate us from the love of God. And in Romans 8, he specifically mentions Jesus sitting at God's right hand, interceding for us. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 3 and argues that as Jesus sits at God's right hand, we are called to grow in both knowledge of God and obedience to God. And then there's that story in Acts chapter 7, the story of Stephen. After Stephen courageously preaches the truth about Jesus, he's put to death for blasphemy, but not before he looks up to heaven. And sees none other than Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. When we first read Psalm 110 this morning, you may have thought it was a bit strange, hard to understand. But when we read it in light of the New Testament, we see that it was really about Jesus all along. And because we know that Jesus is the Messiah, we are reunited with God. We are called to this new life of obedience and holiness. And we can even face the prospect of death with confidence, the way Stephen did. Now, Psalm 110 talks a lot about royalty. There are some theories that maybe it was used in the Old Testament as a coronation text. That when an Israelite king would take the throne, Psalm 110 would be read to celebrate their kingship. It uses the word Lord. It talks about sitting at the right hand of God. There's a scepter and there's that imagery of the ruler defeating his enemies. It all sounds pretty kingly. And it's ironic that even though this psalm is about Jesus and talks so much about royalty, Jesus got anything but the royal treatment in his birth and his life and his death. At Advent, we remember that Christ was born to a middle-class family under somewhat shady circumstances to the average onlooker, that he was greeted by shepherds. We remember that he lived as a traveling preacher, relying on other people's hospitality and generosity to provide for himself and his disciples. He was killed like a criminal and given a sarcastic crown of thorns. It's also ironic that Psalm 110 says that God would make the Messiah's enemies a footstool for his feet. A footstool for his feet. Because if you think back to last week and think back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read there. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All the way back to Genesis 3, 
Mankind has been waiting for a savior and a deliverer. Someone to reverse the curse of sin and death. Someone who would crush our ultimate enemy, Satan, under his feet. Someone who would put Satan as his footstool. And we now know that that person, the perfect fulfillment of that promise, is none other than Jesus. So at Christmas, we worship him as the Messiah who has come. We worship that baby, the one born in Bethlehem, generations after David died. The one David calls Lord in Psalm 110. And as we gather for worship at Christmas, we call that baby Lord as well. Because we know that he's greater than Melchizedek, greater than Moses, and greater even than the angels. We know that he's sitting at God's right hand at this very moment. We know that he's the perfect prophet who speaks on God's behalf, the perfect priest who offered himself up on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And we know he's the perfect king whose return we wait for with anticipation and expectation. And at Christmas, we celebrate that the one whose heel would crush the serpent's head has been born and lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. We celebrate that God has made our ultimate enemy, Satan, a footstool for Jesus' feet. And at Advent, we celebrate and we wait with hope and we wait with confidence, knowing that one day this Christ will return. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you for your word, even parts of your word that can be a little bit confusing. Father, thank you that as we read your word and study your word, that you so often help us understand it. And you so often enlighten us in ways that we wouldn't have without your help. So, Father, I pray as we continue looking to the Psalms today and in the next couple of weeks ahead. I pray that we would see Christ in places that we maybe haven't seen him before and that we would glorify you for that and just be amazed by that. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together. I pray that what we've said and what we've done here would bring you glory and would build us up as a church. So, Father, thank you for your son, that the Messiah has come that he has lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. And Father, I pray that you would give us the strength and the endurance to faithfully wait for his return. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.